0: But we live in a society now where I think my colleagues, quite frankly, are afraid of getting sued if mm. they don't offer every option. Yeah. But offering every option, I think, is lazy medicine when certain options are not
1: in someone's best interest. Yeah. This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors. Books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. I have had the good fortune of recording and interviewing hundreds of authors. I don't know exactly how many it is, but I think I've been doing this for five or more years. And You know, a lot of times there's an interview that just sticks in your brain and stays there and pops up periodically. And one of those interviews for me was with Dr. Sunita Puri, who's an assistant professor of uh, clinical medicine at the University of Southern California and medical director of the palliative medicine unit at Keck Hospital. And she had uh, written a book called The Good Night, which is why I was interviewing her. And the reason we're going to replay it is I've been amazed how many times over the years I have referred a friend to that interview because we hear too many times about somebody who was diagnosed with cancer or some other life-threatening disease. And a lot of times, medical doctors' goal is to cure you, Um, you know, cure you even if it kills you. And what these palliative care doctors do is become your advocate for the notion of this, that a a life well lived is a good death. And it may not even be that your death is imminent, but you are dealing with a life-threatening disease. And when you listen to Sunita's voice, you know that is the kind of person that we all need and want if we're going through such a horrible journey. And I think a lot of times the common thinking is you only call in a palliative care doctor because you're within weeks of dying. But that's not the way for us to think about it. And I hope um, you'll learn that listening to this interview, and you too will uh, think about it again. So please enjoy uh, this interview with with Dr. Sunita Puri, the author of The Good Night. It is an honor, Dr. Puri, to welcome you to Just the Right Book. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor for me,
0: too, because your bookstore was a formative part of my college years. So thank yeah. you. Oh,
1: well, it's it, we're, so for our listeners, um, Dr. Puri and I are recording this in Los Angeles, where I'm on vacation and Dr. Puri uh, works. But because she went to school at Yale, and the book and the bookstore is in Madison. It was it was a lovely um, coincidence, and I was just so looking forward to our meeting. And the fact that you've been to the bookstore is just fun. Um, so your upbringing encompassed the notion of medicine and spirituality, and the temporariness of life. And your upbringing started early with this. You're Dad talked to you when you were five, and your parents are such a vivid and loving part of the book. So share with us how your parents, as Hindus, imbued you with the sensibility that ultimately, I'm guessing, attracted you uh, to palliative care. Absolutely. So I was very...
0: I had a very unusual upbringing in that way, because both my parents are scientists, My dad is an engineer who likes to think he's a doctor, but he's not, (laughs) and my mom is an anesthesiologist. So both of these people kind of practice in a very evidence-based scientific way, and yet both of them, if you asked them how they got where they got in life, it would be, their answer would absolutely be grounded in the language of faith and spirituality. Mm. And so they showed me very early on That God and science are not binaries, that spirituality and science can sit side by side in the service of humanity. Mm -hmm. And my dad was particularly attuned to teaching my brother and I some of these lessons early on. In part because my dad's really kind of a master storyteller, although mm-hmm. I'm convinced some of what he tells me are tall tales. yeah, but that's besides the point. My
1: father would tell tall tales. and And when I'd call him out on it, he'd say, "But it was a good story, right? Exactly. <laughs> right. That's probably what my dad would say. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I know that's what he would say. In fact, and he, so he could tell these stories in a beautiful, convincing way in Hindi, in Punjabi, and in English. And he really wanted – he taught me that through stories of what life can be and what it cannot, including that it cannot be permanent, he really got me at a very young age to think about pretty profound truths And I didn't get them when I was five years old, but growing up, hearing these stories over and over again and having lessons pointed out to me, like, you know, you may be sad today, but look at the sky. The sky was cloudy yesterday and today it's sunny. Mm. In the same way, your sadness is going to pass.
1: So do you think you realized how baked into your brain that notion was, or did you- Become aware of it as you were going through medical school. I
0: think that I became aware of it as I was going through a training that emphasized survival, extending life, no real eye to the concepts of suffering and dignity, which are part and parcel of Hindu and Buddhist philosophy, that suffering Is a part of life Mm. and part of our spiritual reckoning in this life is how we can be with suffering. But medical training was not about that at all. Mm. And so as I was going through my training, I would think back to the days where I would round with my mother, who was going to take patients into the operating room, and she would pray with them. She would ask Mm. them what they believed in and ask them if they wanted to pray before going in she would pray before going in. And so there was this really nice juxtaposition of God and science that was totally absent in medical school and medical training. In fact, I had classmates who, for example, had a strong faith, and people kind of looked at them skeptically. So I kept my spiritual beliefs very much to myself. Mm-hmm. But that question was always there, especially when I was treating patients whose suffering was very visible, who I knew would not live long and who we weren't having that open discussion with.
1: Yeah. And in the part of the book where you talk about spirituality, um, and let's talk about the parents of Jack. Yes. Because I think that story so vividly runs into how you as a doctor need to honor their faith without dismissing the need for them not to believe in miracles. Yep. And that,
0: I remember those scenes so clearly because that was the first time that I felt that I was in the position of needing to maintain that delicate balance mm. of trying to honor where they were coming from to really understand and to some extent inhabit their perspective, but also to use that understanding to help, help them see their son's situation in a slightly different light. And in, before that, you know, if parents came to me and said, we believe in miracles, our son is a fighter, we want to continue everything possible to be done to maintain his life, you know, the year before that, I would have just said okay and kept doing things that weren't necessarily in the patient's best interest. But I didn't have two things. I didn't have the language Mm. and I didn't have the moral courage to step forth into an uncomfortable space and ask them, tell me how your faith defines suffering. Help me understand what a miracle looks like to you. Mm. What if we are doing everything medically possible and your beloved son is still dying? Mm. What is our plan then?
1: Hey, you know in reading the book the use of language going back to Dr McCormick who you did that your two week rounds uh at um in California or thinking about uh the doctor that helped you with Jack's parents Dr Nugay how do you Dr. say Dr Wynn, yes yeah. and You know, I learned so much from the book, but even learning the language that you use for palliative care informed me for language in talking to people in general. Because what I watch, what what I not watch, but as I read about you dealing with patients or colleagues of yours dealing with patients, you learn so much about the language of putting yourself into their shoes and, and starting the conversation from where they are. Yes. Right. And I think we forget that.
0: I think you're absolutely right. And when I teach medical students or residents or coach my colleagues, that is the first step is to get a sense of what do people understand about their medical situation? Mm. What do parents understand about their child's situation? What does a husband understand about his wife's situation? From many angles, not just the medical facts, but what they're hoping for, the beliefs and other experiences that they've had in life that come to bear on this particular situation.
1: Mm.
0: And I think in medicine, we skip the step of understanding. Yeah and we want the plan. We want to give you the explanation and the facts, and we want to make a plan. And I think where that falls short is that the plan may not reflect somebody's perspective or goals or values. And when we skip understanding where they're at, we also skip our responsibility to fill them in if their understanding of their medical situation is not accurate.
1: Yeah. So let's go backwards a second. Yes. Because- Palliative care was only um, established as a designated specialty in 2005 or 6? So in 2006, the American Board of Medical
0: Specialties finally acknowledged that people who practice hospice and palliative care uh, kind of have a special skill set and should be board certified. The actual profession of palliative care kind of started in the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. It grew out of the hospice, hospice movement because hospice brought so many benefits to patients and families. And the thought was if hospice is doing so much to fit to treat the physical, emotional, and spiritual suffering of people, and we're only providing it in the last six months of life... What if we did the same thing when people first got a serious diagnosis and were tending to these domains of suffering throughout the illness journey, not just when further chemo or further dialysis isn't possible? So the beauty of palliative care is that we are an additional team that takes care of patients' quality of life, even as they're getting any treatments that make sense, We get to know them throughout that journey. So we're not just having conversations in the 11th hour.
1: So let's emphasize that because one of the misunderstandings that was cleared up for me, I always considered palliative care and hospice one and the same. And in reading the book, I came to understand a distinction. So I want to have you repeat this idea That patients can get the care that they need for their disease Mm -hmm. at the same time that they're receiving palliative care and contrast that with what hospice does. Certainly. So I can give you an example of a
0: patient of mine. So I met a young woman who had widespread breast cancer, and she was getting chemotherapy, her third line of chemotherapy for breast cancer. Had a lot of pain, had young children, had a husband. The family was suffering mm. emotionally and spiritually, and she was suffering physically. So I started seeing her when she would come to get chemo, and in between those visits, to treat her as a whole person and to help her feel well enough and function well enough to stay strong enough to keep getting chemo. Mm-hmm. And then as as her disease progressed through the fourth and fifth lines, I started to treat other things like depression and anxiety, insomnia, Mm -hmm. lack of appetite, fatigue. And then when it became very clear that the cancer was stronger than her body, we had already started talking about that possibility in the palliative care setting. So when we transitioned her to hospice, she that was basically continuing what i was doing but in the home setting Mm. so that's kind of a concrete example of how the earlier we get involved the better patients do in terms of a quality of life perspective the better their families do from perspectives of anxiety and depression and preparing for loss And the beautiful thing about hospice is that hospice, after she died, continued to provide grief counseling for her kids and her husband and her Mm -hmm. parents. I didn't
1: know they did that.
0: And it's free for 13 months after someone dies. And so that's the full continuum of palliative care and hospice. And a lot of people don't know the difference.
1: Yeah, I, I think most people don't know the difference. And the other thing it made me think about, and there's a couple of threads to this. One is I came to understand that you're dependent on the referring doctors. So how do they decide and how do they get the training to know when to involve you in the care for a patient? That's a great
0: question. And I will say Palliative care education in medical schools throughout the country is not standardized, and it's very, very really. Poor. Oh, yeah. Wait, that doesn't seem no, good. No, it's not good. And the curriculums that are in place at some places are more immersive. So some students actually get – they have to spend a mandatory amount of time – with a palliative care physician or doing a hospice rotation. But at most schools, including USC, where I teach, there's no standardized curriculum. And I think we don't do a good job of preparing students to know that it is just as important to palliate symptoms and walk patients through that final leg of life as it is to start caring for them with every ambition of curing them and extending their lives. Mm. So there's no standardized exposure, unfortunately. And there's also no standardized exposure in residencies throughout the country. So, And is it changing? I think it is changing some institutions more than others. When I was a fellow at Stanford, all of the internal medicine residents had a mandatory, I believe it was two-week palliative care rotation. And I think that every resident in every specialty should be doing that.
1: Because I realize you're dependent on them. Exactly. Right? They could call you in too late. Uh, And so uh, all of a sudden it dawned on me that well, how how are they getting the training to involve you? Yep. Because you're not like going around waiting in the emergency room for like <laughs> say, Okay, I'm gonna take you. Like a little palliative care booth and yeah, like right. trolling for like consoles. a job <laughs> fair. Exactly. I'm looking for palliative care totally.
0: customers. <laughs> that would be a booth with no customers, <laughs> ER especially.
2: Bamba's mission is simple. Make the most comfortable clothes ever and match every item sold with an equal item donated. So when you buy Bamba's, you're also giving to someone in need. Bomba's design their socks, shirts, and underwear to be the clothes you can't wait to put on every day. Everything they make is soft, seamless, tagless, and has a luxuriously cozy feel. They're made from super soft materials like merino wool, Pima cotton, and even cashmere, which makes them the perfect cozy layers. There's a pair of Bamba socks for everything you do. They come in a ton of options, like comfy performance styles for every sport and activity that keeps you moving. Bomba's t-shirts are made with thoughtful design features like invisible seams, soft fabrics, and the perfect weight so they hang just right. And Bomba's underwear has a barely there feel, with second skin support that might make you forget they're even there, in a good way. And did you know that socks, underwear, and t-shirts are the three most requested clothing items at homeless shelters? That's why Bomba's donates one for every item you buy. Our personal favorite product from Bomba's is its running socks. They're breathable, they're moisture-wicking, and they're perfect both for high-impact workouts at the gym or on my long runs on weekends when I go out on the trail. So go to Bomba's, com slash writebook and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash writebook for 20% off. BOMBAS.com slash writebook. How fun is it to look at your home and think about all the different things you can do? The new couches you could buy... Moving things around to see where maybe the TV could look better, different pieces of artwork that you can have hanging up. I can spend a whole afternoon just looking online or watching home decorating shows, just daydreaming about new decor. And if you're like me, you love the idea of redecorating your space. Wouldn't it be great if you could see your interior design ideas come to life? Give redecor a try. Redecor is an interior decorating mobile game that's so much fun to play. Redecor is a great creative outlet that lets your imagination run wild. Experiment with different colors, materials, and textures as you design room after room. While the challenges are really great, I just love expressing my own creativity and seeing all the different things that I can do with a single space. And it's the perfect game to play when you're on the move, maybe on the subway, in between meetings, or just right before the end of the day. And what makes re different is that you can take the fun that you have in the gaming space and bring all that creativity to your own life. And it's fun to test your own creativity. You enter your designs and challenges and let other players be the judge. Read the design brief and impress other fellow re-decorators by choosing the best combination of colors textures and materials out of a variety of options and you submit your best design and you can reap the rewards if you come out on top. So practice your interior design skills and express your creativity with Read the Core. Download Read the Core for free on the App Store or Google Play Store. That's R-E-D-E-C-O-R on the App Store or Google Play Store.
1: One of the things I um, thought about, all, I mean, I, you, you can't help but think about so much in reading your book, but how do you manage working with a family or a patient who's not ready to believe that they are confronting death? That is a great question,
0: and I think it very it varies. Every situation is so different. Yeah. with some pa- so i I kind of follow a couple rules for myself that I've cultivated the hard way, I think, over time, mm. because you go in very much wanting to save the situation. And I've noticed that just as some of my colleagues want to do heroic surgeries, I recognize the impulse in myself that I want to be a specific type of palliative hero Mm. and make everything okay.
1: Yeah. And the first thing- So the hero element of being a doctor, the like, you know, ER, the TV version of a doctor exists.
0: Absolutely. And and it was a real point of intense self-reflection for me because I think- Your earlier question about how colleagues, when they refer, how they learn about palliative care, I get a lot of consults very late in a patient's life because of the hero narrative, Mm -hmm. because we're not taught that there are many ways to be a hero, including having honest conversations about a disease being beyond cure, but the the relief of suffering always being our obligation. So the heroism that I used to engage in was I need to walk in and make a patient and family accept what's happening. And I've stepped away from that because I think that is the only way for me to keep doing the work is to really learn to be present with people, to Mm. understand where they are, and to accept them exactly where they are. And When I walk into rooms where people are really resistant to what I have to say, this happens often. And what I try to do is I remind myself, number one, this is not the only time I'll speak with them. And that takes a lot of the pressure off.
1: Number two- So you don't feel frantic to get it all into that first meeting?
0: No. And I think, and this is something I teach my students too, is that one of the the beauties of our field, I think, is slowing down slowing down the pace of everything that's been happening to this patient up until that point, with the kind of blizzard of tests Mm. and scans and oncologists talking really quickly because it's a 15-minute appointment. And there's a spaciousness to our practice that is hard to inhabit when you're a doctor. Mm. So I slow it down. I remind myself they might be here. I might want them to get here. But how I get them from point A to point B is really the art of being with mm-hmm. someone who's suffering, understanding what they're hoping for. And I am – te- it's almost meditative. I am obsessed with the words that use. And I think this is the writer in me that was drawn to this field. Yeah. Because when someone says, I'm a fighter and I can't accept that I'm dying – I have to understand, tell me what being a fighter means, means to you. What has it meant so far? What? Tell me how you think about the battle you're fighting. And what I try to get people to is this idea that at a certain point, it's actually not about them. It's about their body. And it's biology and nature mm. that take over at a certain point. And that distinction, I think, really helps people to depersonalize their experience with an illness. Yeah, that
1: it's not their not being a fighter. But, you know, you have a couple of examples in the book, and Jack's father, Steve, is one of them, right? Steve's father had been told that he would have six months to live, and it was five or 10 years earlier. So how do you... I mean... Nobody really knows when somebody's going to die. There is the the remote possibility of a miracle. Steve's, Jack's parents totally. were thinking there'd be a miracle. Doctor, uh, uh, your patient, uh, Tan, mm-hmm. you know, he said he was going to go to his daughter's graduation two years out, and you were, in your head, you were like, ain't going to happen, sport. And... <laughs> There you were with him at his daughter's graduation two years later. Mm -hmm. So how do you absorb with these families the possibility that there will be a miracle?
0: I so what I try to do is hold space for everything every possibility. Mm-hmm. And some one of the ways I explain my role to families is to help them prepare for all possible outcomes. And that balance of encouraging hope, which I believe is fundamental to getting up in the morning. We all have to hope for something from our lives, from that day. And so my intention is never to dash the hope for a miracle. It's to understand what that looks like to people, and to also give them the reality as I see it as a doctor and a human being, so that we can not make it about the poles of a reality or a miracle, but rather hold the possibility for both. Yeah. And help them to under help them to think through what if the miracle is out of reach? What is the plan B? And mm-hmm. I really try to think of myself I know this sounds silly, but almost as like a Sherpa, where I know, in, to some extent, I'm not God, certainly, but yeah. I know enough, having seen people over the past five years, the very different paths that lead to the same mountaintop. Yeah. So how can I guide you to make the best decisions for yourself while you hope for the miracle if things go the wrong way? Mm. And what does it mean? What makes life worth living? Yeah, If waiting for a miracle meant being in a facility where you were attached to a ventilator and being fed through a feeding tube and being dialyzed, is that a quality of life you would want as you wait for the miracle? Mm. And those are kind of the tough, tough questions that we don't as a society engage with. We don't engage with it as a medical profession very well. And yet the cost of that suffering is so tremendous. And the numbers of times I've seen patients whose families will tell me, I wish we had talked about this last year. Mm. We may not have done these things if we knew there was another way. And those are the, the times where I remind myself as hard as it is to do this job, as hard as it is to challenge my colleagues and patients and families about their beliefs and their hopes, that's what makes it worth it.
1: Because here's what, he, he, here's part of what I've witnessed, um, that it's remarkable the conversations that are not being had. And I, you know, typically to me, to my experience, it's a type of cancer. Yeah, And they'll talk to the doctors and there's all sorts of loose language going on about, you know, they'll have surgery and they'll say, we've got it. Or they'll, you know, or I hear friends of mine who are doctors say, well, we take the patient's lead to find out if they really want to know the truth or not the truth. Like, I'm like, really, you're deciding that you're not going to let them know that they have three months to live or six, so that what i struggle with is even people who are smart and have access to resources never mind people who don't is it that the palliative care doctor can become the ombudsman or or do the medical doc, the non-palliative care doctors resent someone like you coming in and deterring the heroic medical steps mm-hmm. sooner than they think it's necessary. I mean, it just feels like a mess to me when when I hear about it. Yep. I
0: completely agree it's a mess. That is my diagnosis. <laughs> mess. That's
1: a medical term.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and I think it's a mess for all the reasons you point out. I think we as physicians really don't like being the bearers of bad news or what we perceive to be bad news. And the fine line between the bad news and the truth is a really interesting one to me Mm -hmm. because the truth...
1: That's an interesting way to put it.
0: The truth as we know it medically is what it is in a way. It's the judgment we put on it that it's bad that makes it hard for us to communicate this to to patients. Mm. But if you think just even bioethically, for people to make the right decisions about the sort of treatment they want or don't want, we have got to give them the facts. Mm. And it's not about it being bad or good news or how it makes us as doctors feel. It's the information someone needs in these situations in particular to make the right decisions about their life and how they wanna live and what stretch of time they may have and what that's going to look like with or without a certain intervention.
1: You know, one of the, somewhere in the book you talk about that when you first encounter a patient, that one of the ways you describe who you are or what you do is that you're a quality of life doctor. Yes. So share with us the conversations you have with patients about that? Because it was very striking to me that you got them to talk about, even in the most dire of circumstances, what it was that quality of life for them at that point under those conditions were.
0: So, you know, one of the examples from the book that I still get emotional thinking about is the story of Dave.
1: Yeah, I was going to have you read that a little bit. I would, would be you? happy to. Yeah.
0: Absolutely, let me.
1: Because you also that. learn from that, right?
0: Big time.
1: Yeah. So, so Dave
0: was a patient who had very advanced emphysema and was living in a warehouse, very financially destitute, had a very complex social situation with a son who had been incarcerated for trying to hurt him. And he was really resisting the idea of hospice and even just talking about what he wanted for himself, not when not if but when he got sicker because he was really holding on to wanting to settle affairs for his son and i was in the middle of my palliative care training trying to balance what he was telling me with what i felt was best for him in his situation so i will read a bit from this chapter called gasp how's it going dave i asked my concern apparently quite visible Over the course of my education, I'd come to sense when patients' bodies were starting to decline more rapidly. Something would nag at me. By the time I was nearly finished with residency, I'd learned to listen to my intuition, though I never understood what triggered this inner alarm. Perhaps it was something about the way the patient looked, apart from how their lab tests and CT scans looked. Now in fellowship, I'd discovered the same inner guidance alerting me to patients whose bodies were failing faster than expected. Was it the shadows behind Dave's eyes, I wondered? Was it the way his gasps appeared sharper? No need to look at me like that, Doc. I'm doing just fine, Dave said. Sharp gasp. It looks like you might be a little more out of breath than before, I offered, looking at his oxygen tank. I think it's because I was rushing here, he said. I had to drive back from my brother's house. Cough. So how are things with you? Your job search going okay? At our last clinic appointment, I'd shared with Dave that I'd started to look for jobs in the Bay Area. Thanks for asking. It's going okay, but I'm still not sure where I'll end up, I said. You know, this really strange thing happened the other day, Doc, he said after I asked him how he'd been. I got up and I was breathing hard, but then I looked outside my window and I swear to you, I thought I saw a horse pulling a buggy. It was the strangest thing. When the brain is deprived of enough oxygen, patients can start to hallucinate. Wow, that must really have startled you, I said, choosing my words carefully to modulate my concern. It really did. At first, it was kind of a pleasant sight, but then it wouldn't go away. I mean, a horse and buggy outside a warehouse? Doesn't make sense. Were you dizzy or out of breath at the time, I asked? No, I'd just taken my inhalers and all my medications. I was just getting ready to leave my place. It was like a scene out of an old movie, and then it was just gone. Do you think it means something? Dave might have hallucinated for several different reasons, but because he struggled to breathe at the time, I worried that his oxygen levels might have been dangerously low. I do think it means something, I replied slowly. When the amount of oxygen in the blood gets pretty low... Sometimes people see things or hear things that aren't really there. That would mean that maybe you saw a horse and buggy because your lungs are having a harder time getting enough oxygen to your brain. Oh, Dave replied, so I'm really getting worse. I'm worried about you, Dave, I said. Have you given any more thought up to what we talked about last time? I think we're seeing signs that you really do need more help. Dave sighed, exasperated. I talked to the social worker. She told me that nobody can come help me at home because I live in a warehouse and that's not the type of place these teams go. My anger over this injustice injustice persisted, but sharing my indignation with Dave wouldn't change the situation. I don't understand why, but apparently that's the case, and I'm really sorry, I began. I know you told me you're not open to staying in a facility, but I'm worried that you might need more help just to take care of yourself in the coming months. To finish what you're working on, you need some help to take care of yourself. Dave smiled, a flash of his yellowing teeth against his cracked lips. I knew you'd bring this up again, he said wearily. Hands on his knees, his sentence chased with a deep breath. I'm just not ready yet. I still have work to do on the house. As I'd gotten to know Dave, I'd come to understand how fiercely he raced against a ticking clock to ensure that he left his son in the best possible situation. He persisted, despite his son's behavior, despite the fact that continuing to drive limited the medications I could give him to relieve his worsening gasping. Because I admired him, and possibly because I was secretly hoping he'd outlast his prognosis, I hadn't actually had a forthright conversation about how his disease was progressing. The thought of doing so made me feel as though I would lay waste to the meaning he still hoped was possible to make of his remaining time. I hesitated before I spoke, Understanding firsthand why it was so difficult for oncologists and other specialists who had built relationships with patients over time to tell them the difficult truth of how sick they were and how they were likely to get sicker quickly. Dave, I know you've mentioned to me that you still have things to do, and I want you to be well enough to do those things. But it's clear to me that your emphysema is getting worse, and I wouldn't be a good doctor to you if I didn't talk with you about what you might want as you get sicker. You mean if I get sicker, Dave responded. Doing everything for you means having this conversation. I told myself that if I wasn't honest with Dave, he might not have a say in what happened to him if he took a turn for the worse. He might get treatments he'd never want, suffering in ways that could be avoided just by having an honest conversation with him. To be his doctor, you must tell him the truth. It might be hard for you, but this isn't about you. It's about Dave and his life.
1: So that encompasses so much of what we've been talking about, and I would appreciate it if you would read for us where he, you then leave the hospital Mm -hmm. uh, and start your new job, and then you get a message uh, from Dave. Yes.
0: And that, you know, just even the process of deciding that I wanted to leave the Bay Area and go home to Los Angeles, so much of what I write about that decision-making being based on had to do with how Dave reminded me of my grandmother. Mm -hmm. And so he, for many reasons, was a life-changing patient for me. So I will read two separate paragraphs to kind of tie it together. Exactly one year after I'd moved to Burlingame, I stuffed my clothes and books into two suitcases, filled plastic trash bags with even more papers and books, loaded up my blue Honda, and began driving to Los Angeles. I couldn't believe that my medical training was done. I felt just as disorganized as I'd felt as a resident and fellow, but as of yesterday, I'd become an attending physician, a full-fledged doctor who had completed her training. Though I usually blasted a hip-hop mix when I drove down Interstate 5 to Los Angeles, I began this drive in silence. Familiar scenes whizzed by, the water-starved brown fields along the freeway, lines of almond and citrus trees on family farms, the black and brown cows feasting on lone patches of green. I left behind all the years I'd spent in the Bay Area, the years that passed so slowly and then so fast, just like the drive down the five. I set my bags down in the bedroom in my parents' home, hours later, and noticed a new voicemail on my phone, even though I hadn't heard it ring, possibly because of the poor reception on the freeway. The message was from Dave. On a whim, I'd given him my cell phone number and told him to keep in touch and let me know how he was doing. Even though I shared my number with a small handful of patients over the years, most never called. I hesitated before listening to the voicemail and imagined any number of scenarios that could have prompted Dave to call. I stopped myself from jumping to the worst conclusion, since he couldn't have left a message if he was intubated. I pressed play. It was though he were right there in front of me, in the clinic, pausing and gasping, and putting his hands on his knees and telling me exactly what he had to say. Doc, it's me, Dave. I came in for my clinic appointment today. I just met the new doctor, the one I guess is your replacement. Gasp. She's kind of green, I guess, still learning, maybe. Cough. I just wanted to say I'll never forget you. I wish you all the best of luck in your career. Thank you for everything you did for me. Cough. You don't need to call back. I just, you know wanted you to know. I saved his message and pressed my phone against my heart. I looked out the window of my childhood bedroom at the guava tree and tomato plants and patches of wildflowers in my mother's small garden. I listened to the pressure cooker hissing in the kitchen below, inhaling the scent of the garlic, ginger, and onion that my mother had chopped and stirred into dal. It was as though I was back in high school, just on the verge of leaving for college. Nothing had changed here, though everything had. I wondered if I'd be here right now if I had not met Dave. I pressed the phone harder against my heart and wished I could thank Dave for everything that he actually did for me.
1: Mm, It's such a beautiful, It's just so beautiful. Um, And and you know, the thing is, the other part of all of this that I thought about is that even though your parents helped you realize that to appreciate the beauty of life, you had to understand death. Yes. And the loss. Yet, what is it that you use for an inner reserve to cope with the fact that? you lose patience so soon after you meet them I, I i it's hard for me to imagine what that toll is like day in and day out so where do you find the strength to cope with that
0: i think this is something that has been a work in progress for me to be totally honest mm. It's like the gulf between intellectually knowing and emotionally accepting that I'm going to lose pretty much every patient I see at some point. Yeah. It's not possible to find solace just in the teachings that my parents passed down to me. It's not enough. Definitely not enough. It's almost like the scaffolding But I have to put things on that scaffolding to hold myself up. Mm. And I think for me, especially since at USC, I see a lot of very young patients, people around my age and younger. And that adds a layer of complexity to the loss because they see me as a peer. And I grapple a lot with why is this happening to them and not to me? And I find the inner reserve by trying the best I can to A, acknowledge my feelings, which for many years, honestly, I kept buried. I was not in touch with myself. And doctors must do
1: that all the time. All the time. It's
0: literally trained out of you because. If you are self-aware and attentive to your emotions, then getting through 40-hour shifts when I was a resident was just not possible. It was, in fact, a lot- You had to button it up. You had to button it up, and that made it easier in a way until you leave your training and you're hit with this tidal wave Mm -hmm. of everything you've witnessed and all the trauma that brings. So I really rely on talking things through with my close friends, my family, I go to therapy, which I think is really helpful for me to make mm-hmm. sense of what I see and to tie it into how it affects the rest of my life. Yeah, um, I go to yoga. I also I meditate. And I, my brother has now pushed me to start- He's a doctor also, He's right? a psychiatrist. So we both ended up in these fields where my parents are like,
1: what did we do wrong, do you parents? Yeah, I mean, I love the conversation here where your mother's like, "You're going to do what?" Exactly. That's not a good idea. That's not a real doctor. I mean, my dad still is like,
0: "You know, I kind of think she's a doctor. I know she's a writer. That I know because she made me read her book." My dad was like, "Do I really have to read this? It's really long." <laughs> I was like, you are in it. So this is your last chance yeah, to yeah. say if you're okay with what I wrote. But, yeah, I mean, they were very resistant to this idea. My and, mom, they're, and
1: they're probably as cynical about psychiatry. Oh,
0: yeah. I yeah. mean, they wonder why. And my brother's an addiction psychiatrist. Oh. So he's really kind of in, other, in another set of really intense situations. Um, so we blame our career choices on our parents. Yeah, why not? <laughs> <laughs> they're like, why can't you be like every other Indian and be a cardiologist? <laughs> my dad still secretly <laughs> hopes I'll see the light and go back to fellowship. (laughs) Um, But I mean, I think that having that reserve of like, inner strength is does not come easily to me. And I have I mean, I'll be very honest, I have days where I'll lose a bunch of people, or I'll fight with other doctors. I shouldn't say fight, maybe strongly challenge my colleagues about what our plan is for someone. And When I can't help a situation in the way I wish I could, I go home and I cry. Mm. Or I go into a bathroom stall at work and I cry. Yeah. And I really try to, to, to abide by what I tell my patients and their families, which is that don't deny yourself the emotions you feel. Because if we bottle it up, we can get sick in one way or another.
2: Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I just always forgot about taking my pills and vitamins, and I wanted a supplement that actually tastes great. Now I've been on it for about a couple weeks and I love it. it. doesn't taste like it's super healthy. It has a kind of mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to each morning. So what is this stuff? With one delicious scoop of AG1, You're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. The special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All the things. Why do I consume it? I'm always on the go and having something that I can mix together really quickly into a provided bottle is just the easiest way for me to take in the vitamins that I need every day. And not that I'm the most healthiest eater, but I do focus on what I consume, and the fact that it contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals, or artificial anything while still tasting great is really important to me. And it supports better sleep quality and recovery, as well as mental clarity and alertness. And I think that's the best part about Athletic Greens, that it uses the best of the best products based on the latest science with constant product iterations and third-party testing. And it costs you less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health and it's cheaper than your cold brew habit. And as I said, I care about where my food and everything I consume comes from. And Athletic Greens is a climate neutral certified company. In 2020, purchased carbon credits that supports projects protecting old-growth rainforests. And for every purchase, they donate to organizations helping to get nutritious food to kids in need, including no kid hungry here in the U.S. So right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune support and vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go visit athleticgreens.com writebook. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash writebook to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance.
1: Sunita, one of the things that, as I'm listening to you, is I don't imagine you'd be able to do what you do without being able to acknowledge what it's doing to you, right? Because you, you there has to be so much humanity and so much being in touch with Emotions to do what you do. If you weren't in touch, I don't know how you. I don't know how you deliver on what palliative care is supposed to do. I mean, there it seems that way. I think
0: you're absolutely right, and I think many of us that choose to go into this aren't afraid of what comes up within ourselves, mm. and that's something I've noticed with some of my mentors and colleagues yeah. I really respect is that we move towards the difficulty, the unacknowledged spaces in medicine, the silences, the things that are not sexy or glamorous but are vital to helping patients live through the thing that each one of us is gonna go through, but we must also move towards the difficulty in ourselves. Mm. And let's face it, the whole trope of a wounded healer, that's what physicians and caregivers in all sorts of professions are. We come to this work with wounds. The question is, can you reckon with your wounds and even, in fact, use them as a tool to be a better doctor, to mm-hmm. be a more present person? Because I think what my patients are asking of me is not just my doctorly knowledge, it's just my humanity. Mm-hmm. That's what they really want from doctors in general.
1: And and are there institutional barriers now still to palliative care being more widely available? I think,
0: so one very sad thing is that we're just, there's a shortage of us who Mm. are trained expertly in palliative care, physicians, nurses, social workers. So just the the lack of the robust workforce is a big problem. Is
1: that about medical schools that aren't offering it or is that about it not being a sexy part of medicine. I mean, what is it that's not attracting people?
0: I think it's the latter, that it's so difficult. It's not really taught. And so you have to kind of be, you have to be the sort of person that wants to seek out something that is going to be a lifelong challenge. I also think burnout is a big issue I in can imagine. Field. Because when you're stretched to the max because you don't have a lot of colleagues and you're dealing with, you're essentially trying to be an agent for culture change within the medical institution. Which must be pretty damn hidebound. It really, it's like the myth of Sisyphus, (laughs) right? You just kind of like roll the rock up and then it comes back and rolls you over and you have to like set it back on its course. And I... And you have to have a lot of patience to be able to do that. And I think that that's also – that contributes to a a small workforce. I think that within institutions also – there's just a lot of infrastructure that many places lack. So for example, making palliative care a standard part of care for patients with an advanced cancer. We know that the American Society of Clinical Oncology recommends that we are involved from day one. If someone has a stage three or four cancer, it's a guideline like standard of care. But is it followed? I would say not always. In fact, not often.
1: But- it shouldn't or or should? Uh, well, let me even put it a different way. I mean, one of the reasons that I think everybody on the planet should read this book is we as patients are informed to ask for this, so that if the if the institutions are in saying, so is it logical for a patient who either their cancer advances or they receive the diagnosis as their first diagnosis to ask for a palliative care? I mean, is that like a legit thing to do? For sure. And in fact,
0: we will on our office line sometimes get messages from family members or patients saying, I'd like to come see someone in our palliative care clinic, or mm. my loved one is hospitalized. Someone gave me this number. We would like a palliative care doctor to come see my father. And so I think patients and families should seek this out. Yeah. Because even if it's just one meeting at the very beginning with a cancer that may have some chance of being cured, at least the relationship is established, people can understand what we're about. If they're really suffering with the existential, spiritual, physical distress of this diagnosis, our team can help. It doesn't always have to mean gloom and doom. It really is about quality of life. So the more patients ask for it, the more, if they have a good experience, they write to the hospital administration and say, every patient should have this team involved, that's the sort of grassroots advocacy that I think can make a difference. Because let's face it, we are not money makers in palliative care. We don't Mm -hmm. bring in the big bucks, but we do the right thing. And so from an administrator's perspective in the hospital, if they get letters every time someone has a good experience with palliative care team, they have an incentive in this new era to make sure they grow that program.
1: So the other part of this is our patients, you know, what I think about is our patients, if they involved palliative care, and if doctors were more blunt about what treatment might look like or what benefits it may or may not inure, do you think that less people might uh, resort, I'll use that word, resort to the, the kind of treatments that you feel you have to do now because it's being provided and they're offering up hope. I mean, yep. that feels like that needs to change. I completely agree. And I think there's this paradigm
0: in medical practice of give the patients all their options and let them pick. And is that right? I don't think that's right. And some people who are listening to this will probably write me a very angry letter I later. Disagree. And that's okay, because I'm all for having this debate. I think our responsibility as doctors is to go back to what we're taught and what we know works yeah. and what doesn't. I'll give you an example.
1: I'm annoyed when a doctor says, well, here are your options. You decide, well, you're the doctor. Exactly. I'm a bookseller. Totally.
0: <laughs> when I went to an accountant for the first time a couple years ago, She was like, we could do this or this. I was like, I don't know the tax law. Like, what would you recommend? (laughs) And so they're looking to us for expertise and recommendations. So one of the hardest things I think we struggle with is questions around CPR and resuscitation and life-sustaining treatments. And if someone has a really advanced cancer or is very sick on multiple machines in the ICU... I'll sometimes see my colleagues or residents say, do you want us to restart your heart if it stops? Which is a terrible way to have that conversation, but it's offering an option and putting all the responsibility on people who are in distress, who don't necessarily know what saying yes or no would mean. And so instead to say, and this is what I often say Given how sick you are, or given how sick your loved one is, if they get to the point where their cancer is stronger than their body and their heart stops, I recommend that we allow for peace and dignity in the process of dying. And I do not recommend going through CPR, shocks, and being on life support mm. because none of that will reverse the reason why they got to that point, but
1: you don't think we do enough of giving our giving uh, doctors giving their opinion about what they would recommend for that person.
0: Absolutely, we are almost uncomfortable with it because we want the patient and family to decide. Yeah. And I think in these circumstances, really high stakes circumstances. The question I'll ask my colleagues is, what does your gut say? Are you offering two options and secretly hoping the person does not choose one of them? And almost 100% across the board, they say yes. Then I say, so why are you offering that? Yeah, really? Really? And that's, and I have my students and residents witness these interactions because we all at some level in these sorts of situations, we know as doctors, that one path is going to lead down a, to a place that no one wants to go. Mm. And I challenge them to think of it as not their putting their judgment and values in shaping racks, but going back to the scientific literature, the evidence, our clinical experience, and saying, That is the well of knowledge that's giving you this gut reaction. And this gut reaction is legitimate. Mm -hmm. And so part of my role sometimes in the meetings is It's knowledge-based. It's knowledge-based. It's not, well, I wouldn't go through it, so I'm telling you not to go through it. Mm -hmm. It's not a bias. It's knowledge. But we live in a society now where I think my colleagues, quite frankly, are afraid of getting sued. If they mm. don't offer every option, yeah. But offering every option, I think, is lazy medicine when certain options are not in someone's best interest. Yeah.
1: So in you know, I wish we could go on and on because there's <laughs> we didn't even get to talk about your grandmother and your mother and <laughs> which is I mean part of the book is a memoir in uh, in some way. Let me close with this. What do you hope the impact of the book will be?
0: You know, I wrote this book because before all of this medical training, I was always a writer and a deep lover of language and story. And I wrote it to, in a very literary way, Try to get points across about what it means to live a temporary life, to get readers to think about if I were in the circumstances presented here, what might I want for myself, to help people feel less lonely and isolated as they and people they love move through this part of life, and honestly, to honor the immigration stories of my parents, the struggle of my grandmother, and me trying to figure out who I was, Mm -hmm. given the place they came from, and the place I chose to go in life. So I really hope that from a literary perspective, and also kind of a community change perspective, the book empowers people.
1: Mm -hmm. Well... I I would give you lots of gold stars (laughs) on that objective. Um, I, um, you know, I'd like to thank you for taking the time um, to join us. I also would like to thank you for writing this book because these are the conversations that are not being had. And I think most of us feel powerless. And I do think after reading this, which I recommend that everybody, as I said earlier, on the planet read it, you feel a little empowered to think about these things because inevitably we will all deal with death, our own or somebody else's. And to me, the, the takeaway is what I said in the beginning um that are your words not my words but in order to live a good life you need to have a good death and uh, i came to understand after reading the book that palliative care is is the route where we get that opportunity so thank you on all those levels um for the book and joining me we've been talking with um sunita puri uh, the author of the book that "Good Night, Life and Medicine" in the eleventh hour. It will be coming out in paperback in March, and I hope you and everybody you know um, goes to pick the book up at an independent bookstore near you. Uh, Sunita, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor, and I love your bookstore. Oh, so thank you for your
0: <laughs> bookstore
1: too. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by LitHub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and LitHub Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.